Welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. Today's episode is a roundtable discussion with my co-hosts, Ryan Fasani and Brian Wardlaw. And our topic of conversation is this past month's guest, Pastor Emily Taylor. We sat down with Pastor Emily to understand her life's journey, her ministry, and what has changed in her relationship with the church. We also talked to her at length about what it looks like to embody a gospel good news that is good news for all of life, and not simply some sort of get-out-of-hell-free card. Part of our inspiration to talk with Pastor Emily about her life was the result of a quote we were discussing at length with one another. The quote in question was from author Jen Hatmaker from her book For the Love. Now in previous episodes we mentioned just a single line, but I would like to read it in its fullness so we can understand the context of what she is talking about. It isn't also true for a poor single Christian mom in Haiti. It isn't true. If a sermon promises health and wealth to the faithful, it isn't true, because that theology makes God an absolute monster who only blesses rich Westerners and despises Christians in Africa, India, China, South America, Russia, rural Appalachia, inner city America, and everywhere else a sincere believer remains poor. If it isn't also true for a poor single Christian mom in Haiti, it isn't true. If doctrine elevates a woman's marriage with children's status as her highest calling, it isn't true, because that omits single believers, whose status Paul considered preferable. Widows, the childless by choice of fate or loss, the divorced, and the celibate gay. If these folks are second-class citizens in the kingdom because they aren't married with children, then God just excluded millions of people from gospel work. And I guess they should just eat rocks and die. If it isn't also true for a poor single Christian mom in Haiti, it isn't true. Theology is either true everywhere or it isn't true anywhere. Once again, this is Jen Hatmaker from her book, For the Love. In just a moment, we will get to our roundtable discussion. And in it, you will hear my co-hosts and I explain why this quote, this topic of gospel being good news even for single mothers in Haiti, is central to the life of the church, to God's mission here on earth as it is in heaven. You will also hear us reflect on Pastor Emily's story and our reflections on how her ministry of found space helps answer some of these questions and is a direct critique of the prosperity gospel that is prevalent in our society today. The gospel that says if you do it right and you play the part, you'll be healthy and wealthy and avoid suffering altogether. And finally, you'll probably hear us talk about why we think she's a guerrilla pastor doing subversive ministry. So without further delay, we start off our conversation rooted in this Jen Hatmaker quote that has us asking some pretty significant questions about the gospel. In the episode, I called it pop theology. And the reason I called it that is because oftentimes we take nice quotes from books and it just becomes an oversimplification that turns into, well, obviously now there's more missionaries in Haiti, so we're doing it, right? But what that quote does is it challenges some of the assumptions that at least I grew up with. And some of this could be my own short-sighted understanding of the gospel. But as I as I kind of mentioned in the episode, all all my upbringing, all my life, and still today, many churches I see... Um, good news equals only repercussions for the afterlife, right? Like it's 
all that matters with this whole good news gospel thing is where you're going to end up when you die. But this good news for mothers in Haiti, it asks a really important question that's pretty pointed. And that that has everything to do with, well, what about this life? Doesn't the gospel have something to say about this life? Jesus came and said, it's good news for the oppressed, for the blind, for these people that are suffering right now on this planet, on this plane of existence. So once you start to ask yourself, well, shouldn't the gospel be good news for the mother in Haiti, then you can't help but ask yourself, well, what does that mean? What does that mean for me as a person trying to embody the gospel, but what does that mean for the church? What does that mean for the mission of the kingdom of God? It's, it's no longer just thoughts and prayers, take care of yourself. It, it means you have to be potentially, uh, you know, an, I don't know, we could call it answer of prayer or, or, or just the actual embodiment of the gospel for somebody else potentially. So it's just something I think that that's a really great opportunity for us to wrestle with because it's too easy and too too common for us to simply say gospel equals get out of get a get out of hell free card. Um, a single mother in Haiti, uh, while it refers to actual women um, that care for children that live in a geographical location called Haiti, um, it also is a type of symbol for the epitome of suffering or the epitome of hardship. Maybe suffering is a little bit more of uh, kind of an angular look at it, but the epitome of hardship and challenge. Um, when we think of children raised in an environment in, in an environment of plenty, um, we don't think of a single guardian in an impoverished um, economic socioeconomic environment um, struggling to make ends meet and nurture their children. So. This phrase that I know it was it was uh you know referenced by Jen Hatmaker, I think is necessarily one we must reckon with insofar as we have a vision for what holistic health looks like. Because holi- what is holistic health if it's not taking seriously the plight of the poor, the downcast nature of um psychological disorders? Um, of the rampant experience of loneliness, of you know the live the you know the struggle of what it means to live in conflict zones and in war zones around the world. I mean, if it's not if it can't speak directly to these these pinnacles of suffering and darkness, then what can it speak to? It can can it reinforce the cushiness of you know sort of North American suburbia? I think. When we free ourselves from the afterlife being the totality of what it means to envision the good news, we're then free to then ask the question, well, then what is it for and for whom is it good? And I think in the nature of, you know, the, the or in the history of the prophet, you know, the prophets from Israel through the prophetic ministry of Jesus into the modern day prophets like Martin Luther King and Dorothy Day and 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 those that are living in urban America doing community development. I mean, they're asking this question that is the, a type of engine for their ministry. How is the good news good for those suffering the most? If we can't reckon with that at the very least and come up with substantial answers and solutions. And I think we're playing a type of gimmicky um, Christianity, a type of hollow, offering a type of hollow good news. And I think, you know, the the heart of guerrilla pastoring is sort of running out of bandwidth for the gimmicky. 
and fully investing into the substance of real answers for real suffering. Yeah, I think uh, to piggyback on that, I th- um, I would agree with everything you guys have just said, and I think there's so I'm gonna I'm gonna make it personal. Twice in my life, I've lived overseas for an extended amount of time and seen extreme poverty. Uh, spent one as a child in Africa uh, for about nine years, and then a couple of years in Romania. Uh, and during that time, working with kids that uh, were running around on the street and really had to make their living and uh, or keep alive on the street, um, even if some of them have had homes and parents. Uh, so, and each time that I I came back into the U.S., uh, I was, I re-engaged into the U.S. culture in very upper middle class, if not upper upper class um, uh, places, uh, suburbs of Kansas City, Johnson County, Kansas, and um, in Naples, Florida, another time. And now I live in Seattle, in North Seattle, uh, north part of Seattle, which is a whole, is another very upper middle class uh, area. The So asking that question, I can take it and try to put my upper middle class life where I'm worried about whether or not I can ski this weekend and whether or not my um, finances are secure um, and whether or not I can retire someday and whether or not my kids can go to college. So um, I can... I can sit at that place and try to put myself in the shoes of the single mother in Haiti and try to understand gospel. But I think what happens is as we do that, what it does is it allows us actually to sit at the same spot. Um, Because if I'm really going to try to answer that question, it's not going to work for me just trying to put myself in the shoes of the single mother in Haiti. It, it, the only way that works is if, Asking that question makes me divorced from the securities that I'm holding on to that are all all false, all false. Um, my 401k, that's all bullcrap. It, it does not give me any security. Uh, and so until I can divorce from that, then sit at the same seat with the mother, the single mother in Haiti, and then hit the big questions of life and the mystics and all that and the restoration of all things then we find ourselves sitting at the same seat and i think then that's when we can really engage engage in the neighborhood i don't know if it works and i'm speaking uh my faith was saved by a street kid named oviju in romania who through the lenses of the gospel that i had been given um, I knew that it was n- worthless to Oviju. And so I had, it saved my faith because I had to come to a place where I asked the questions and realized that Oviju and I were on the same playing field and asking the same questions that, and, and needing to. And then I could really start to engage with the depth of the gospel, I think. Since our hope is to do just that, to engage with the absolute depths of the gospel, we continued our discussion and shift gears focusing on Pastor Emily's story. You may remember that she rejected this shallow and prosperity gospel-informed gospel that told her she needed to just do her daily devotions and she would no longer suffer. That if she played the part, she had her husband and children with her, and her family was happy, then suffering should no longer exist. 
This, of course, was not the case, and it changed how she engaged with the church, both as a participant in worship and fellowship, but also as a pastor. Ryan continues our conversation, reflecting on the shift both in Emily's personal life story, but also in how she does pastoral ministry. One of the things about Emily's ministry, or should I say the embodiment of her vocational call into ministry that is so profoundly subversive to me, is that she is what I would call a suffering forward pastoral care provider. In other words, she doesn't hide her experience of hardship so that she can administer pastoral care um, by way of fulfilling a role in a church body. Instead, she acknowledges and embraces her hardship, which is a host of things, which is like a familial breakdown, relational struggle, all of the chaos that we all experience in everyday life and, you know, in in, uh, raising children, but particularly the breakdown in a type of fundamental promise in evangelical theology. And that is, if you do the right things, for her, that was your devotions, read your Bible and, and be in prayer, then your life will be cleaned up and straightened out. Or as I've heard someone else say, squeaky clean and peachy clean, peachy keen. And when that broke down for her, she became someone that became public in her hardship. And that has served as the conduit, the subversive conduit for her to connect with people that are on the margins of the body and the life of the church. Right. And so, so for, there's a couple like really concrete examples of how she's subversive. Not that she's got a Goliath that she's trying to topple as much as by being present with her wounds and her hardship, she's necessarily present and connected to other people and their wounds and their hardship. So by virtue of embracing her own heart, her own suffering as part and parcel, not distinct and separate, but as part and parcel of the gospel of Jesus, of the redemptive work of God, She's finding all of these impromptu encounters that are very pastoral and very replete with the presence of the Spirit and engaging other people in hardship, suffering, darkness, etc. Right. And to me, that shift from fulfilling a role and having a message, a type of message, message of cleanliness, perfection, and do-gooderness, and instead embracing a, a a message of connection and solidarity and redemptive presence in, you know, in relationship, she is subverting an unhealthy concept of what it means for God to do the work of redemption in and among his people. Anyhow, to me, that was so front and center to her story that I I found myself nodding along in, in the whole episode. Like she gets it, she gets it. But she gets it in a way that's embodied as opposed to like an intellectual ascription to the tenets of guerrilla pastoring. She is an embodiment of the subversion we're talking about. She also named it early on in the interview, saying that if you if you look like you have it all together, no one that doesn't have it all together will ever come and talk to you about real life stuff. Right. Whether you're a pastor, whether you're just a person, you know, going to a church, whether you're just a human being in in this, if you look like you have it all together, someone that deeply needs someone who 
who can just be a part of what she calls the found space ministry, just like embodying gospel's good news for all of life by being simply like a listening ear, grieving along with somebody, lamenting with their suffering. They'll never be honest with you. They'll never even approach you and talk to you about stuff. So this is the connection for me to the, is the gospel good news for single mothers in Haiti? She's not trying to like signal a certain thing. She's simply being honest in a way that like, you know, like Brian was saying earlier, you can sit down with that person. That person is actually willing to sit down with you and you can bear one another's burdens with love at that point. You can actually be a real human person who's not putting on some sort of facade, which is some of that carryover to, to, you know, this misguided approach to what, what is the gospel look like? What does it look like to have it all together? What is the end goal of all of this stuff? But that was something that I thought was so interesting. Cause I also, I don't know that she's, she would say this, this is just my take. She has embodied the pastoral presence she needed, right? And probably didn't get when she was younger. And that's that's something that I find sort of interesting. I would say that's kind of part of my own journey as well. Maybe you guys would say the same thing. Like there was pieces of what the church couldn't offer, couldn't deal with, couldn't like reconcile that in your brain was the breakdown. And then in some way your ministry might reflect like, well, we need to do this. So I need to have it as part of what I do as a minister. So she can now simply sit there and without holding some unhealthy expectation on another person of, well, did you do your devotionals today? Because then your life will be okay. But she's just simply actually sitting there having real conversations with folks, lamenting along with them, grieving along with them, embodying gospel, which I think is, is awesome. I think the beauty of what I saw and heard during her interview was the spirit of reconciliation, the true um, healing gospel the the good of the gospel um that has happened in her through her trial um you know richard Rohr, one of the things he says that i know may get us in trouble just for saying that name but just for the fun of um having wisdom actually spoken to our lives one of the things that he leans into is uh this quote that says the path of descent is a path of transformation Darkness, failure, relapse, death, and woundedness are our primary teachers rather than ideas or doctrines. I, I've really leaned on that, and that has become more and more true in my life. But I think what I'm saying, as you guys have brought up, is the embodying of the gospel, the reconciling gospel in Emily, Emily's life could have too easily been embraced cheaply in a way that she only looked for the blame game and the anger, and you don't actually go through to healing where you become a part of the healing of others. That man, that is, I thought that was was beautiful and a and a piece of a piece of there. I can go there way too fast as far as blaming and being angry, um, but to see the healing um, in her life that she can then embody and give to others, I think is a true testament of the indwelling of the spirit of god just to make it even more spiritual <laughs> <laughs> you know this reminds me of an important distinction um that i'm learning to make as i m more deeply learn the the critical uh shift that's underway from kind of a traditional church pastoring ministry to what we're calling a, a ministry of subversive presence and that and that is this you know, to think of the gospel as the good, good because it gets you out of hell and into heaven, and in, uh, 
is is limited in for obvious reasons and we're seeing a transition to an embracing of the good news necessarily having to be about all of life but here's the distinction we could intellectually disagree with that and never budge from what it looks like practically right like i can say this posthumanist reality and uh, where we're a disembodied soul in heaven i could i can just dismiss that intellectually and say that's limited that's barely even grounded in scripture and i could place it historically and i could never sort of identify with that doctrine again and i could still carry on and practice that doctrine embody the promises of that doctrine right what i see in emily which is a type of charge for me um, as i more fully learn guerrilla ministry is unless if it's fully practiced or embodied differently, there's residue of the old doctrine that will always remain. And you get the sense in her story that she's rooted out the, the unhealth of the old doctrine, right? By precisely what you're saying, right, Brian, by fully going into, fully descending into the darkness, the hardship, the pain, the grief, and by extension, all the work that's required to sincerely address the cause of those without blame, right? That's, an, that's, that's not intellectualizing the problems of a doctrine. That's fully embodying the possibilities of a new understanding of good news, right? And it's almost like you could almost say to emerge with a new embodied good news of, to all of life, we must all go through a descending process. That's why. I, I appreciate her story so much because she's an archetype for the journey we all must go on, right? As you heard, there was much to wrestle with with Pastor Emily's story as it pertains to this idea that the gospel is truly good news for all of life. But in closing, I would draw your attention to one component of her story that I found particularly challenging. In some ways, it does what Fasani was saying with this emerging with a new embodiment of what it looks like for the gospel to be good news for all of life, even for those single mothers in Haiti. Pastor Emily mentioned it in passing when she said the sermon was not in fact the most important thing a pastor could do on a weekly basis. Yes, it's significant, it's important, it's been the focus of our Sunday morning emphasized ministries for a long time. But may I remind you of what Brian said? about the relationships he had, the impromptu found space that challenged him to wrestle with the depths of the gospel. There was no sermon involved. These moments that Emily pastors someone one-on-one in what she calls found space ministry leave indelible marks. They are memorable events in a person's history that they can look back on and assuredly remember with clarity. And while outlines and bulletins about sermon points may collect, sermon points which are often quickly and easily forgotten, these moments of embodiment of the gospel remain, and they enter into suffering, which means they have something to say about it. We thank Pastor Emily for sharing her story to help us better understand what it looks like to be both a guerrilla pastor doing subversive ministry, but also someone who simply cares about another and that the gospel can be good news for all. If you enjoyed her first interview, then be sure to hear the full-length and unedited version 
to better understand who Pastor Emily is and what it looks like to practice subversive presence. Join us on our next episode, where we highlight yet another guerrilla pastor who is embodying this gospel good news. And if all goes to plan, you'll hear one of my fellow hosts do an interview or two as we continue to journey through this year, naming the shift that is taking place within culture, the church, and how ministry is done all together. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. We would greatly appreciate it. I've been your host, Josiah. This is the Gorilla Pastors Podcast, and thank you so much for listening. Join us next time.